Over the last couple of weeks of the holiday season, I watched A Christmas Carol twice. Two different versions. One version was my family's traditional Muppet Christmas Carol. We watch it every single year, and it's a great version of it. Lots of great songs, and I think it stays fairly close to Charles Dickens' intention. But this year, I decided that I also wanted to watch one that I haven't watched in a really long time. It's the one that George C. Scott starred in, I think from 1984 or something like that, but it's been around for a while. And I was amazed, I mean, you know, Muppets are going to be in its own category, but I was amazed at how much different it was. And it was darker, definitely. And it definitely brings up some Dickinsonian uh, themes, you know, like the uh, rich and poor and how that interacts. But it was also much more poignant. Uh, Scrooge was a little bit more human. And the thing that really interested me, though, was the relationship between Jacob Marley, his former business partner who was dead to begin with, um, and Scrooge. Because Marley, in this, uh, in this uh, take on it, comes back from the grave specifically out of friendship to warn Ebenezer Scrooge. Because uh, Jacob Marley, as he says, forged his own chains in life because he was greedy, he didn't care about other people, he didn't do important things that he could have with his life, and he wants to spare his friend Ebenezer from doing all of these things. And he says some really touching things. He communicates that there are all these blessings in Scrooge's life that Scrooge doesn't see. And he literally tells him, Ebenezer, you're wasting your life and you're not doing the things that are really, really important. And so it starts out being very, very touching, a friend trying to rescue another friend. And so you know the story, the ghost of Christmas past, the ghost of Christmas present, the ghost of Christmas yet to come. And so he goes through this, and the ghost of Christmas past shows him what was. And in his early life, it was pretty tragic. There were some really hard moments. His mom died in childbirth, uh, giving birth to him, and his dad never forgave him for that. So he was pretty much abandoned at a boarding school, and there's just other difficult things. And then the ghost also shows him what could have been. In other words, some of the choices that he made. And it showed this person who had loved him, and his response, Ebenezer Scrooge's response, was only half-hearted. And so eventually the woman gives up and he sees what she went on to. And he could have had that, but he didn't because his response to her was half-hearted. And then she shows him the family that he currently has. He has one living nephew who is trying really, really hard to be involved in his uncle's life. And Scrooge doesn't have time for him. It's just not a priority. His priority is to make money. And then he gets shown that his life ultimately is lacking significance. The only thing he's leaving behind is people that are glad he's gone, who wonder what he did with his money. And then it all culminates in a chance for Scrooge to change. The real turning point comes in the graveyard when he finds his name on the tombstone and he begs the spirit of Christmas yet to come for the chance to change. And the rest of the story is the tale of how Scrooge does change. And now I want to tell you another story that's very similar, but I guarantee is so unfamiliar that 99% of you have never even heard of it before. Some might call it obscure. It's out of 2 Kings 13, verses 14 through 19. 
Now Elisha had been suffering from the illness from which he died. Jehoash, king of Israel, went down to see him and wept over him. My father, my father, he cried, the chariots and the horsemen of Israel. Elisha said, get a bow and some arrows, and he did so. Take the bow in your hands, he said to the king of Israel. When he had taken it, Elisha put his hands on the king's hands. Open the east window, he said, and he opened it. Shoot, Elijah said, and he shot. The Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Aram, Elisha declared. You will completely destroy the Arameans at Aphek. Then he said, take the arrows, and the king took them. Elisha told him, strike the ground. He struck it three times and stopped. The man of God was angry with him and said, you should have struck the ground five or six times. Then you would have defeated Aram and completely destroyed it. But now you will defeat it only three times. So this picks up more stories of Elisha. We were introduced to Elisha the prophet in the fall sermon series. We talked about him a couple of times. And here we are at the end of Elisha's life and we see the value that Elisha has to the country and particularly to the king. Elisha has been around for 50 years and he's been a trusted advisor, sometimes a thorn in the flesh, to three different kings. And some of the important things he has done, he continually gave the king basically military intelligence about where the army of the Arameans was going to ambush them, save the army of Israel from defeat many times. He assured them of God's presence during various sieges and difficult times. He basically spoke for God. If you wanted to know what God was thinking, you asked Elisha. And so this also raises the specter of the Arameans, basically where like Syria is today. It's just who they're having trouble with. There's just skirmishes and fights and battles over and over again. And Elisha was helpful in that. And now he's dying. And Jehoash is a new king. I don't know how young he was, but he's a new king. And he doesn't have a lot of experience. And so to be starting out and having one of the pillars of the nation, having the security of having Elisha around and then having him be taken away, that is a big deal. And you can see that Jehoash is kind of shaken by this because it says he weeps over him. And it's sort of this like, what am I going to do without you? Basically, he says, I'd rather have you than all of the chariots and horsemen of Israel. So it's kind of this crisis moment for Jehoash. And then Elisha does this strange thing, which I think we need to file under, faith requires action. It says, Elisha told him to get a bow and some arrows. And so Jehoash did. And he says, take the bow in your hands. And when he had taken, Elisha put his hands on the king's hands. Now, this doesn't mean a whole lot to us, but it meant a lot to him. Because what's happening is, Elisha is, is giving him his blessing, is joining with him in it, and is symbolically saying that God is with you in this endeavor. So even though it's a little bit strange, take up your bow, grab an arrow, and have you shoot it, by putting his hands on it, he gives it this great significance. He's blessing what Jehoash is about to do. So this should be a clue to Jehoash that something important is going on. And then he says, open the east window. He opens it. Shoot, Elijah said, and he shot. And Elisha says, this is the Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Aram, the people that they're at war with. Elisha declared, you will completely destroy the Arameans at Aphek. So this battle that is apparently coming up, he just got good news 
because God promises that he is going to win that battle. So, but then Elisha continues. Then he said, verse 18, take the arrows, and the king took them, and Elisha told him, strike the ground. So, what's that about? Well, first of all, it means that God has something else in store. And there is, again, another element of faith requires action. And so he takes the arrows, I don't know however many he has, maybe five or six of them, and he strikes the ground with, with them, which is an unusual use of arrows, but okay. But he just strikes it three times and stops. Well, okay, that's reasonable. Elisha didn't say how many times to do it, so I think, you know, Jehoash reaches over, you know, tap, 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 or something like that. But it says that it makes Elisha mad. That's verse 19. And Elisha says, you should have struck the ground five or six times. Then you would have defeated Aram and completely destroyed it. Oh, so now we're sort of getting to what was going on. And then he says, but now you will defeat it only three times. You'll only defeat it the number of times that you actually tapped. And I think Jehoash has got to be like, whoa, I did not expect that reaction. So what's up with this, Elisha? So maybe the king only tapped three times because he had already heard what he wanted to hear. I mean, his crisis was apparently the Aramean army at Aphek. Everything else was like, okay, got what I needed to know, tap, tap, tap. And maybe he was just humoring the old man. Why in the world does the crazy old man want me to take three arrows and tap the ground? Okay, tap, tap, tap. And maybe, maybe Jehoash thought that it was just too silly for him to actually participate in. And this wouldn't be the first time that Elisha asked somebody to do something that they thought was silly. In chapter 5, we get the story of Naaman, the Syrian, who had leprosy. And his king sent him, the king of Aram, oddly enough, sends him to Elisha to get healed. And Elisha says, go dunk yourself in the river. And Naaman gets mad. He's like, why would I do that? That's dumb. We got cleaner rivers where I'm from. So it wouldn't have been the first time that Elisha had asked somebody to do something that they thought was silly. But whatever, his, whatever he was thinking, Jehoash's response was basically half-hearted. Tap, tap, tap. And it disappoints Elisha, and it makes him mad. One translation, the translation that I like best, says, Elijah says, you should have struck the ground boldly. And I think that gets us to what the most important part of the text is. He's like, Jehoash, your reaction was timid. It was half-hearted. You didn't take it seriously enough. And now you've squandered an opportunity. The ghost of Christmas past shows Ebenezer Scrooge what could have been. And now after the fact, Elisha shows Jehoash what could have been if he had not responded half-heartedly. In that moment, at some level or another, Jehoash wasted his potential. So this was a significant moment. He had an opportunity to strike the ground boldly, but he didn't take it. Both Jehoash and Scrooge had an opportunity set before them basically to evaluate their lives and to make changes. Scrooge took it, Jehoash didn't. Now, they're not the only two 
who have these moments that come along in their lives where they have to make a decision about how they're gonna behave, about what they're gonna do, about what quality their faith and what quality their reaction and response is going to be. We also have opportunities that are set before us. And so the question today on January 1st is, what will you do with the opportunities that lie ahead of you this year? There's a whole year that lies in front of us and it's filled with opportunities from God. So what's your reaction going to be to them? You can be half-hearted, you can be lazy, you can make a bunch of excuses. You could start well, like with most New Year's resolutions, but not have the determination to finish well. Or you can take the opportunity and strike the ground boldly. So I, one of the things I think would be helpful is let's start the year by looking at the end of the year. So this is January 1st. If we fast forward to December 31st, what do you want your life to look like? on December 31st. I think it can be filled with joy. I think it can be filled with significant living, with life-giving relationships. And I think you can spend a year being used by God in incredible ways if you choose to do that, if you strike the ground boldly. So I'm gonna take a look at a couple of areas of our lives and then life in general. The first area that I wanna look at is spiritual commitment. What will your relationship to Jesus look like this year? Now, I could start with 12 reasons you should be close to Jesus, but I don't want to talk you into this thing. I'm not going to give you an, an overwhelming intellectual argument for why following Jesus is better. The question that I want to start with is, why wouldn't you want to be close to Jesus? Why wouldn't you want to tap into that? I mean, Jesus connects us to peace and to hope and to joy. Jesus provides answers to the great questions of life. Now, I am deeply sorry for all of the crazy Christians who are running around out there. But don't focus on them, focus on Jesus. Because sometimes we just look at crazy Christians and that can be an excuse for us not to engage with Jesus. The point is to engage with Jesus. We have this opportunity to strike the ground boldly by making a decision to get closer to Jesus this year. So in order to do that, you've gotta take some steps. And the most important thing is Find something that works for you. Different people are, are built differently. Find the thing that will help you connect with Jesus. Maybe you might want to find a daily devotional or some other way to expose yourself to prayer and Bible study. Why? Because it's important what you put into your mind. And the more time you, you spend like in a Bible study or learning to pray, the more you'll find yourself being built up and encouraged and edified as opposed to being torn down or told you aren't good enough. There's a source of power and strength there, source of good advice that we can tap into, but we have to decide to expose ourselves to that. If I could actually pick one thing for you to do this year, if you're like, I can only do one thing, here's the one thing, join a small group or get involved in mentoring. We're gonna be talking about in the next couple of weeks about three, two, one, because I think the most effective way for us to grow in our relationship to Jesus is to be connected with other people who can help us. I mean, anybody who's ever been to, through a 12-step program knows you can't do it alone. 
And that lesson holds true in so many other things. Athletically, you'll train better if you're training with somebody else. We just do better when we're involved with people who can cheer us on, who can help us out, who can encourage us. So find an hour a week to connect with other people, whether it's a small group or a mentoring relationship, because you can find one hour a week. Now I can hear it, I cannot. I am too busy, I have too much going on, I have young kids, I have older kids, I've got this, I've got that, uh-huh. Okay, so if you just hold up your iPhone and from the, the home screen swipe left, it will show you what your screen time is. Would you show that to me now? Uh-huh, you, you've got time. You can find an hour a week. Part of this too is realizing that you're gonna become like the people that you hang out with. Every parent knows this. So make a decision at the beginning of the year that you're gonna hang around in an intentional way with people that will help you get closer to Jesus. Personal connection is so important. If you look at both Ebenezer Scrooge and Jehoash, they both had friends or a mentor who pushed them to make changes in their lives, to do the right thing, to be fully in. And we all need that input in our lives. We need somebody like Jacob Marley who's gonna tell us that we're missing out. Or we need somebody like Elisha who's gonna challenge us to be fully committed. And this year, I think more than any other year that I can think of, we need to remember that past performance doesn't guarantee future results. The pandemic was bizarre. We all got busy doing other things and sometimes we got out of the habit of doing the most important stuff. So it's not enough that you used to belong to a men's group or that you used to be in a Bible study or that you used to serve. You've got to double down now, looking forward into 2023 and set new habits. And in spiritual growth, I hope being committed to worship being a part of what we're doing on Sunday mornings will be one of them. Because worship is all about identity creation and maintenance. In worship, when we gather together on Sunday mornings, we help you to understand who you are. We help you to remember who your identity is in Christ. We spent the whole fall looking at stories of origin to remind us of who we are because we get a different message about our value from God than we do from the culture. Worship helps us to create an identity, and then worship helps to remind us of that. Every week we're reminded that we are loved, that we have value, that God can use us in whatever situation we are. So worship will help you grow, and I hope that you'll be committed to that. Because one of the dangers that faces the church, particularly after COVID, is that we develop a consumer mentality towards it. And it's not even so much, you know, we come to church going, entertain me or make me laugh. It has more to do with the consumer level of, I'm not gonna participate, I'm just gonna consume. I'm not gonna fully be involved in serving. I'm not gonna engage with people around me. I'm not gonna <clears throat> talk to people that I don't know. And so this can be devastating, both to the whole church and also to us because you're gonna get out of Harbor Covenant about what you put in. Our Christmas Eve services were absolutely phenomenal. And I guarantee however much you enjoyed participating in, the people who served got more out of it because they had the opportunity to see the joy in people's faces. They had the opportunity to be used by God to bring encouragement to folks. 
worshiping. You'll get more if you put more into that. So I really encourage you in this coming year as a part of your own spiritual discipline of getting closer to Jesus to get involved to the community that he's called you to, to strike the ground boldly in your church involvement because he's called us together for a purpose. I think we also need to look at how we measure success. One of my favorite things when I watch, because I watch a lot of HGTV, one of my favorite things is watching people who are going to redo their home. And somebody says to them, you know, after they've picked out their countertops or whatever, oh, you so deserve this. And I'm like, why? Why do they deserve that? What do they do that makes them deserve granted? I, I don't know what that is. I'm not so sure. So we all get this picture in our mind of what success looks like of what we're all striving for. So maybe you couldn't care less about granite countertops. I don't have granite, I have quartz. Um, but what would make you feel like you've arrived? What would make you feel like you've made it, that you're successful? Think about that for a few minutes, seconds. Now pay attention to the first three things you said. And would those things line up with how God measures success? Because in some ways, Ebenezer Scrooge was incredibly successful. He had more money than he could spend, but he had no success in the things that were most important, living significantly, having key relationships, pouring into others. Sometimes we set ourselves up for disappointment. I've said this so many times, because we're on this ladder of success and we look up instead of looking down. And there's always gonna be somebody with more. Whatever it is that you want, you will never have enough because someone will always have more. The trick is to look down the ladder and to realize the blessings that you have and how God can leverage those blessings in your life to make you joyful, but also to bless other people. Which kind of leads us to finances. Don't, don't tune out. Um, I'm convinced that money does one of two things. It either gives us the opportunity to make a difference in the lives of people around us or it gives us more opportunities to self-medicate. That was Ebenezer Scrooge's lesson. He had plenty of money, but he wasn't doing anything significant with it. He wasn't changing the world, and it just left him empty, even though his bank account was full. I, I look at all the opportunities that we have to make a difference, and the ways we have made a difference over the past couple of years, a uh, couple of months, looking at communities and schools, and the way all the things we have provided for kids and their families who have needs, working to provide furniture through the Furniture Bank, reaching out to students in Alaska, particularly during this crisis time of suicide, helping whole villages out in India, working in the Peninsula School District, and then you all are involved in a billion other ways in our communities making a difference. But there's always more that could be done, and we have a tendency to look at our own needs first. Not that that's bad. And if you've got the resources to do what you want to do, God bless you. But here's a challenge for you. Would you ever consider spending one day less on vacation and using that money to help someone else? Or we found out this year that at elementary schools that kids like to have birthday parties. And on their birthdays, their parents send uh, cupcakes and you know pre-wrapped stuff, it has to be store-bought, uh, and things to share to celebrate the kid's birthday as long as you have a parent that cares or as long as you have a parent that isn't strung out on drugs and didn't get up that morning. 
And so there's kids and it's their day to have a birthday party and nobody provides the birthday for them. How much does it cost to buy cupcakes? I mean, maybe when your kid has a birthday, would you talk to the local school and see if you could provide a birthday party for some kid who's got a dad who's absent and a mom who's strung out in drugs or whatever? I mean, there's so many interesting things we can do. Are you doing anything significant with your finances? I mean, a coat, a scholarship to Bible camp, furniture, a lantern for a house with no lights in India, a very small investment makes an enormous difference in someone else's life. And the glory goes to Jesus. Maybe this is the year that the opportunity is out in front of you to deal with some of the unhealthy behaviors in your life. Maybe you know you drink too much. Maybe you know, because your friends keep telling you, that you complain too much. Maybe you spend money the wrong way. Maybe you're in denial about your other addictions. This could be the year for you to make a change in those areas. Or, or maybe it's not those things. Maybe you are still enslaved to something terrible that happened to you as a child or as an adult or some, something that has power over you. And maybe through prayer, maybe through working with a therapist, maybe through whatever work you need to do, this could be the year that you break the power of, that that demon has had over you. You can respond to those things this year. You can strike the ground boldly and get rid of some of the unhealthy behaviors in your life. And then what about relational commitments? How are the key relationships in your life? As you look forward to this year where you have this opportunity, what kind of husband, what kind of wife do you want to be? How can you improve your marriage? What kind of effort are you putting into the relationship? How can you, I mean, are you taking your spouse for granted? They've been around for so long and you know they're not going to leave, so maybe you treat them like a piece of, of furniture. How can you put the spark back in the marriage? How can you learn to communicate more effectively that you really do love and care for them and that you're really very grateful for them? Do you look out over the year and realize over the past year you've drifted apart because of benign neglect and now you can do something about that? What goals will you have for your relationship to have a more healthy marriage, to be better at being a husband, to be better at being a wife over these next 365 days that you can set as a goal? How about your kids? How's your relationship with your kids? And honestly, it doesn't make any difference how old they are. It doesn't make a difference whether they're in their uh, toddler stage or if your kids have retired. It is never too late to go back and tell your kids that you love them. It's never too late to want to develop a relationship that maybe you wish that you had that you didn't. It's never too late to go back to your kid and go, I'm sorry. I wasn't there when I should have been, or that thing that I said, I really regret that. It is never too late. You'd be surprised the healing power of, of investing in your kids, however old they are. But if you have younger children, what are you teaching them? And based on what you push them to do, what would your kids say is the most important priority you have for them? I would say a lot of parents, the, um, the subliminal message that they give to their kids is that they expect them to play D1 level sports in college. And that's not gonna happen. So what's your backup plan? What are you teaching them about how important their relationship with Jesus is? And how can they tell that by the basis of your time commitment and what, what you encourage them to do? 
And then it also occurred to me, because we're a multi-generational church, that we could look at striking the ground boldly about taking advantage of the opportunity on some generational levels. So we have people in their 90s. We have one person who's in their late 90s. We have four or five people who are in their early 90s. And your 90s is your decade to be joyful. And that's what these people are. These people have seen it all. They've walked with God for a long time. And if you ever want to see joy, if you ever want to see faith, hang around with our 90-year-old crowd. Um, because they have made the choice that in their 90s, they're going to be a source of joy to the people around them. That's a great goal for this year. People in your 80s. 80s is kind of the, the decade to kind of figure out how you're going to finish. How do you want this thing to end up? Uh, when we first came here, Sammy McCubbins led a group that was called the Home Stretch. And I always thought it was a little bit morbid, but they picked it themselves and it was an opportunity for them to go, we've only got X amount of time. What do we want the last bit of time to look like? And then I, I was thinking the other day that in the Home Stretch, the people in the stand, they can see how you're finishing. And maybe that's encouragement too. As you you're in the home stretch. What do you want people to see in your life? What do you want to show people is important? I hear way too many people, not in church, but I have other friends, who, who reach that stage in their life and they basically say, I've reached the stage of life where I can say anything that I want. Nobody thinks that's funny. Nobody think it's, thinks it's cute. And if you say that often enough, there won't be very many people around for you to say anything to. So how do you want to finish in your 70s, and some of these bleed over, you might have other things, this is just my stuff. 70s, I think, is when you really need to be thinking about leaving a legacy by investing in people. You might have a little bit more time, you might have a little bit more disposable money that you can invest in people and invest in significance. It's a, it's a chance to leave a legacy. And many of you started that back in your 20s, which you can't. But 70s, I think it's time for you to go, what have you got for me now, God? Because most of you are still active, most of you can do what you want to do, and God isn't done with you yet. I think if you're in your 70s, it's the chance to say, how do I invest? How do I invest in the kingdom? How do I invest in God? 60s is somewhat like that. Maybe you're in the first few years of retirement. Maybe you're checking stuff off of your bucket list, the, the trips that you've always wanted to take, the people that you want to be with, the hobby that you want to pick up. That's all great. But as you move forward into this next phase of life, where are you going to make a difference for the kingdom of God? And I think you can begin to think about, I've got a little bit of extra time now, although most retirees I know are like, I don't know how I find time to work, I'm so busy, but how are you investing in other people? Be building the legacy that you're going to really put a capstone on in your 70s. People in your 50s, well, most of you are going to be at the top of your earning potential. And it's a chance to make an impact on other people. It's a chance to do things for other people with the resources that you have. It's also an optimal time to make a course correction. It's an optimal time to look at mistakes that you are making and correct them while you still have time to do that. And then maybe this is the time when you establish a friendship relationship with your grown children as that changes. Your 30s and your 40s, most of you guys are raising families. You're growing in your career. Your kids are anywhere from toddlers to high school or something like that. I think your job is to look for balance 
and to prioritize the right things. I mean, you only get 18 summers with your kids, so you wanna make sure that you are present in their lives, helping them to learn the right priorities and do the right things. You're dealing with prime disappointments because some things will not go well. There will be challenges. You're gonna be busy. I can remember when my kids were little and my goal for the day was to have five minutes alone in the bathroom to take a shower. And you know, it, it was a low bar and it didn't always get met. So there are the stress there. But you also can learn to stick close to God during those challenging moments of child rearing and getting set in your career and making sure that you're doing the things that you wanna to do to be who you want to be people in your teens and your 20s, you're setting patterns for the rest of your life. You're making choices now that are going to set the course for the rest of your life. Don't get freaked out by that, but you're going down a road. doesn't mean that you can't uh, change that road, but you're going to make some important choices, and they can be fixed later, but if you make bad choices, they can derail you for quite some time. So choose well because you don't always understand how important the things that you do in your teens and 20s are for who you're gonna be for the rest of your life. So choose well, you'll be glad that you did. So we're standing at the beginning of this year that is filled with potential to waste. It's never too early or too late to waste your potential. It's also never too early or too late to make significant changes with the opportunities that, were before you, that are before you. So, will you strike the ground boldly? One of my favorite theologians, Blake Merwin, said to me that the five to six strikes in here aren't really about intention, they're about execution. And I think that's true. He intended to strike the ground, he just didn't do it very much. His execution was off. Acknowledging that there are growth areas, acknowledging that there are opportunities is part of the battle but then you have to do something about it. You can be freed from your addictions, but you have to do something about it. You can be a better dad or a better mom, but you have to do something about it. You've got to set goals. You've got to develop new habits. In the comment, one of the commentaries I read in this passage, this was a line that, st that stuck to me about Jehoash. The commentator said, more would have been granted to him had the faith of the king risen to the opportunity than afforded him. He had an opportunity, he squandered it. More would have been given to him if he had had the faith and the determination. May this be the year that you rise to the opportunity and strike the ground boldly. My prayer for you is that you will prayerfully evaluate your life and take advantage of this opportunity to make some changes so that when you get to the end of the year, you'll be able to celebrate the difference that occurred in your life this year. My prayer is that you'll get to the end of the year, and because of the choices that you have made by the grace of God, you'll feel more joy and peace. Your marriage will be better. Your relationships with your kids will be good. Your friendships will be a joy, and you'll be involved in significant ministry. So let me ask you three questions. What is one area in your personal life in which you want to strike the ground boldly. Number two, what steps will you take to ensure you actually do? And number three, how can you participate more fully in the mission of Harbor Cove?